Hello everyone and welcome to a new edition of the Practice of Film Criticism Podcast 2022. Today I'm joined by Sam Hamilton to talk about Long Day's Journey Into Night. And I must tell you that when I first saw it, I thought it was an adaptation of the O'Neill play. Sidney Lumet made a film of that with Catherine Hepburn. And I thought, oh, how odd. Like, I thought it was some Chinese adaptation, you know, of this. And instead, it turns out to be completely different. Totally so, different, yeah. yeah. And of course, features a 59-minute tracking shot that mm. I think brought a lot of audiences in. But actually, it's crucial in why the film succeeds as this sort of mix of genres and mix of styles. Mm. It's a film that's difficult to grasp in terms of plot. Yeah. We find a man who um, has just returned home to the town of Kaili in China after his father's passed away. And this is a town that bears a lot of interesting memories that we kind of discover one by one in a distinctly non-chronological order Mm. and the first half of the film is basically him rediscovering the town but also revisiting his memories Mm. which mainly involve a woman that he once knew called Wan Chuen who um, he had some sort of brief relationship with and we don't really know how they met but it suggested that he was you know in some sort of criminal capacity. And uh, yeah, their relationship mainly involved trying to get away from that. Uh, It appears that it failed and he spent the rest of his life essentially pining Mm. after that lost relationship. At a certain point, when he finds out where she might be, he goes to visit that place. And then the film turns into a completely different beast where you have basically that 59 minute tracking shot begins. And not only does the feeling of the film change, but also some of the characters reappear with sort of different identities. Really, the film feels as though it's changing both in narrative and stylistic ways. The film is really in two parts. Yeah. yeah? So describe the first part a little bit. Yeah. What does it look and feel like? What happens in it? A selection of, um, of memories uh, interspliced by this character's searching for Wan Chi Wen. And uh, it's, it, there's a lot of transitions between the scenes, so you qu- don't quite know until you're in the scene where you are or when you are. It has like a, a disjointed feel, but also a very mellow, contemplative flow. And the images are really precise, really controlled. Mm. And as he's been able to do, because it's all cut up into small scenes, he doesn't have that luxury, obviously, later on. And uh, there's a lot of reflection on... Um, Typical images of noir, you know, time, the the rain, the, the like, the vamp, the fedora wearing heavy. So it gives you that sense of noir, but there's also a lot of dwelling on images and symbols. There's a conversation scene with Wan Chuen in one of his memories, where he pans away from the couple and towards a, a a glass of water that's slowly moving towards the edge of the table due to the train arriving that's mm. about to take her away. Mm. The second part is there's a real change of gear. Mm. It's you're thrown all of a sudden into a um, cohesive shot, but it's it's not really a cohesive narrative from that point. You have him in a cave with a boy who we have no idea who he is. He could be a manifestation of the the boy that they had aborted. Mm. He then you know travels through this valley you know down a zip wire. We follow him, lots of impressive stunts and visuals, but the main emphasis is is on journey. Mm. And actually, we spend a lot of time follow, just following him yes. um, as he sort of travels through this quite abandoned um, rural sort of village mm. that kind of rem- reminisces of, um, you know, other like Chinese filmmakers like uh, Zhang Kejie or Simon mm. Liang or something, mm. like the abandoned fortresses of the past and things mm. like that. Yeah, it's a place where people kind of lived and worked and so on and is now like in ruins. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so the sense of not just pastness, but also waste or, you know, like an underworld of homelessness, pornography, prostitution. Yeah, the way that kind of, yeah, subaltern peoples make a living out of the scraps of something, mm. right? Yeah. You know, there's very much that sense of it. Yeah, and those are the people, in fact, who populate that Room. Yeah, no, we keep seeing it. I mean, all through that sequence, there's constant reminders of a sort of, like, struggle. Mm. There's a horse that is, like, a recurring motif, mm. struggling under a cart that it can't really, you know, mm. can't sustain the weight. Mm. And it's spilling um, fruit off the back, and mm. fruit is a is a recurring motif of sadness in the film. Yes. Fruit is with the mother, the mother who abandoned him. But also there's that, you know, kind of, did the mother abandon them? You know, she ended up in prison. He doesn't know what happened, right? But... There's a sense of prison and pornography and like you do get a sense of that of that underworld, of netherworld, you know, that, that comes yeah, across yeah. very vividly. And somehow seems to mirror a kind of state of mind or it feels like an extrapolation of where he is at that point in the story. Mm. Like a continuity in psyche but in, in basically not much else. Mm. Um, and that's really what gave me the idea that the first half is memories and the second half is dreams. And that is a, another recurring motif. And like the second half is detailed with things that relate to him mm. in a sort of uh, surreal order, mm. such in such close proximity. Mm. Everything has a meaning to him mm. uh, that it feels almost like a dream. Yes. I mean, I think this connection to memory, dream and noir is obviously like, and very fascinating. So there are references to things that you encountered in the first part of the film. You know, the wild pomelo or the dyeing the hair red. You know, these things reappear but in a different way. Yeah? And, and also kind of, she reappears. But it's almost every question he asks, he responds, she responds with a question or with a, mm. yeah, with a non-answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same for the boy as well. Yeah. Essentially, everyone has like a, a subtle mistrust of him. Yes. In that, you know, she actually, the boy says that he looks shifty and then she is, has some similar remarks towards mm. him. So, so what drew you to it? What's the pull of the film for you? For me, it's something I've been looking at actually through my time at Warwick, which is like audience experience mm. and uh, the way a film can be made to communicate in the way it feels. Mm. And this film is just like undeniably full of texture and stillness and movement and playing with sound and visuals and images and all these kinds of things that exist on a separate level to the sort of superficial way we usually engage with the film. Mm. I mean, I think it's a fascinating film, partly because some of the visuals are just jaw-droppingly beautiful. <laughs> like, you know, there was one moment where I really kind of went like, wow. That was the, uh, the market, right? Yeah, yeah, the market, you know, where he's buying food and yeah, it's all it's in like, red and, yeah. you know, it's, it's just so beautiful. And it's not kind of beautiful to be pretty. It's also, it's like really expressive. It's like yeah. a beautiful... You know, beautiful visuals, beautifully filmed, very expressive. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gorgeous thing to see, that then kind of creates this romantic, alienated, lonely kind of feeling or mm. experience of watching. Yeah, so. Yeah. And it's a very interesting kind of um, tension between those things. Yeah. That particular shot that you described, it's, it's, it's all like pink neon, red lights from buildings, and um, he's in a marketplace, and it's might be raining, I'm not sure. It's, 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 it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very evocative of, of like even something like Blade Runner or something. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the colour is used variously. You know, we, we get like scenes with thick green hues, 
seeds were thick, red, yellow. Mm. Yeah, so the, the, the imagery is really expressive. Mm. Both you and I have had the experience of now seeing it three times. Yeah. Yeah. And not quite sure what the story in narrative terms is. Yeah. And also, like, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's a reason why you went back to see it the second time and the third time. Yeah. And getting grasp of the plot was not the burning issue behind any of those decisions. Yeah. Mm. And you went to see it again because. You know, it seemed, I don't know, beautiful. It was like a kind of, you know, an experience. And there was, to me, something about the sadness of the film and the regret, yeah, and this play with kind of memory and longing kind of drew me, really, that mm. kind of stays with me, in fact. And all sometimes visualized so beautifully. Right? Mm. Like, so it's a film that kind of almost imbues you with that particular kind of feeling. And it doesn't much matter whether you get the plot right, I thought. The strongest voice is the director's, and you know that at all times. I mean, for the whole film through, you know you're in good hands. Mm. The visuals are so strong, but also the sound is really interesting, often playing against the image. But yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, like I said, when it really reminds me a little bit of those existential novels of the 40s. Yeah, right. You have a man who's kind of lost, right? So his father's died... His mother abandoned him, and yet somehow his search for meaning revolves around a search for the mother that is accompanied by a search for a lost love. And that in itself is so interesting, yeah, to have like the mother kind of paired with, you know, kind of the search for someone who meant so much to you and you maybe didn't know it at the time. Yeah, but you keep looking for that person, right? Mm. They're the two characters that change in that final act, and, and um, both of them no longer recognise him. Mm. And I think that's part of the whole feeling of loss, mm. is that if he came back and suddenly it's a happy reunion and everyone's... That's not what the film is. Mm. It's that sense of loss is reinforced by the fact that they don't remember him, mm. that their appearances sort of changed, that their characters have changed. Mm. There can be no, resu- no complete resolution, mm. because... Well, of the intervening of time, you know, mm. too much has happened. Let's talk a little bit about that 50-odd minute long take, yeah. Um, because I think we have to rethink the long take anyway, right? So, you know, when you see Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, that opening sequence, which is only three minutes and something, you know, it is dazzling, I think. Yeah, and part of the reason why it makes it, why it's dazzling is because... It was so hard to achieve, the mm. camera had to be on a track. I mean, it's clearly not the same kind of accomplishment if you could put a steady cam and just follow people around, right? right? Yeah. Which a lot of filmmakers tend to do. There's you know? another thing in that shot, which is the suspense. So, like, Orson Welles knew it was serving a purpose. Yes. So he puts the bomb in the car and you follow the car every inch of the way. It's people are walking next to the car. There's always something that's about to go horribly wrong. But also there's so much going on in that three minutes, right? And it's so choreographed, all the elements, right? You know, kind of with the border, the police, the couple coming in, the other couple that's rhymed and exposed in the car. I mean, there's, yeah, three three minutes something with a world happening, right? And now what you often get in in cinema is just, you know, a camera following up someone's back for ten minutes, right? I hate that. Now, this has a lot of that, yeah. Mm. 
uh, and it didn't irritate me in the way that it normally does. So first of all, you know, so what's the purpose of a 50-odd minute kind of long take if all you're seeing for, like, I don't know, quite a lot of it is someone's back? It's everywhere nowadays. And it's it's so easy to do that that you do have to ask questions about, you know, what's the utility of doing it for its own sake? Mm. But I also see why the director might have opted for that, not only thematically in the ways we've described, but also um, being with him the whole time is in a really effective way to um, follow him to the journey's end because you know this is what it is. There's no need really to continue cutting in the same way back and forth because all the action happens here. Mm. He's done the journey, he's recounted his past. would be reasonable to, to, to do a long take for that because it's somewhere in this compound is where she is. Mm. And uh, whether he finds her or not, is just dependent on how long he has to walk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay, no, that's great. Yeah, we had a long discussion after the screening. Yeah. What in that discussion, you know, particularly drew your interest as being particularly relevant to, to the film and your interest in it? I liked the way that, that, that Cam spoke about texture in the film. Mm. And, uh, yeah, because that's something that I feel like everyone felt. This sort of, particularly in the first half of the film where there's a real control over the, the scenes, there, there might be a, a pool of water that he's panning across and the, sort of, the sound becomes almost submerged. Mm. Uh, there's a, a, a clock that we've, we've seen earlier reappears in the water and um, you know there's like moss around it and the characters maybe reflected in the water having a conversation. As you pan up, the sound is changing, but also there's new visuals and... Mm and a sense of like slow movement between different setups, each one of them having a real detail and, and reality, and it feels like it's breathing, and like mm. you can read a lot into each sequence, which makes re-watching the film really easy. Mm. The more people talked about it, it's almost like the more enthusiastic people got about the experience that they just had. Mm. And I thought that was like a really interesting illustration of film themes of alienation, of, of following, of... You know, the film had a certain kind of meditative quality. I wouldn't say slowness necessarily, but yeah, it had a particular pace. And so things that kind of people looking for their usual experience of watching a film initially found fault in, the more they talked about it, the more interesting the film became to them, I thought. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. And I mean, the first thing I asked was who followed the whole story, because I knew that everyone would say not me. Mm. And uh, it really benefited from, like, from everyone acknowledging that mm. so then we could say well what was the point of the film then because mm. we know the director was like in control here mm. he doesn't want you to feel like you're certain of everything mm. um so yeah having that conversation sort of allows all of us to to see what the point of the film is mm. which is not to sort of have your conventional like roll out of a story people were really seemed to be just taken over by the power of the images and like saw it as this sort of meditative slash fantastical uh, epic journey in a sense the intimations of the magical yeah kind of and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that yeah so there's, there's a, a lot particularly in that in that long take and uh, the way I read it was having seen his first film Kylie Blues where there's a lot of explicit referencing of Buddhism mm. I just interpreted it as there being some element of that in the philosophy behind this sequence there is the bardo, the Buddhist concept of a sort of uh, like an underworld sort of afterlife between um, death and rebirth. Mm. And I mean, that 
perfectly fits the setting and the feeling of what's going on mm. so that could be like an underpinning of the rationale behind all this fancy stuff but we see it in many forms mm. firstly in time which seems to sort of freely stop and resume for example he lights a firework walks away for half an hour comes back and it still hasn't mm. gone off mm. and there's a moment where they transform seemingly using a ping pong paddle into birds and, mm. and sort of descend like you said and then reappear from it somewhere else in the in the frame. There's there's a whole range of fantastical elements to it. Mm. I don't feel like it totally ruins the effect either. Mm. It's not like we're we're suddenly pulled out by the fact that they've turned into into birds and flown away. No, not at all. Yeah, you know, which is interesting. I mean, I think kind of you know you give yourself over to the story. It almost it's like mm. yeah, it's kind of magical. I thought yeah, like I I looked on it with pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Of, of it, it's just, this is the way that, that world. yeah, the way that the director has sort of led you down this rabbit hole. You just sort of accept the, the absurdities that, that that come up, mm. and like the the fact that the house literally spins on an axis mm. at the end mm. is almost romantic. Mm. <laughs> Which, yes, I think so too. Yeah. When you show this to an audience, there's there's too much that isn't noir mm. to really treat it like a pure noir film. Mm. So which are the elements of the film that uh, you most uh, hope to uh, research? The sense of, like I said, of um, texture and uh, I'm not sure if there's a word in film studies for it, but the way the film feels, the sort of... Yeah, it's kind of caught between, I suppose, haptics yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and also affect, I suppose. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. That's, that's something that I'm, I've been always like interested in and I feel like doesn't get mentioned a lot particularly in film criticism that you read online mm. and so that's something that is so clear about the film that it has this this other edge to it one of the things that we haven't talked about is the film was shot and initially released yeah at least in some places in 3d yeah yeah and the 3d yeah becomes kind of quite significant in the second part of the film yeah particularly if i remember correctly in the transitional moment yeah, where the protagonist descends, literally like descends mm. <laughs> into this world. Yeah. I thought it's interesting at least to explore kind of the possibilities of what the 3D brings to this narrative, you know, particularly in the ways that it plays with space mm. and perception. Yeah, this compound that we described has a real sort of like M.C. Escher, Piranesi feel to it. And it's, it's like a labyrinth as he moves around. I mean, there's the obvious thing about him soaring overhead when they have that sort of bird-like sequence. Mm. But also, once you're in the compound, um, bringing out that feeling of, of like, labyrinthine mm. alleyways and, and things and stairs and, mm. you know, the, the range and between close-ups and, uh, and, and long shots mm. where you have, like, wide-open spaces, people walking, you know, from far away up close. I, I saw Gatsby, right, which was in 3D. Right, and I thought it was great. Right, the Baz Luhrmann. Uh, the Baz Luhrmann. I think yeah. it's a, I think it's a masterpiece. And the reason why is what the three D brings or expresses into that, right? Because you know, like kind of the la- I forget what the last line in the film is. You know that the green it's, light yeah, is across uh, the bay. In, it's, yeah, the sort of beating against the current into the past. Yeah, yeah. and you can you 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 can almost grasp it, but yeah. you can't. That's yeah. that's literally what I was thinking of with this film. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. Well, the three D 
it, it, it embodies that thing that you can see, but you can't, yeah, if you go to touch it, it's not there, right? It's kind of 3D, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so the 3D actually encapsulates that whole feeling idea mm-hmm. of, you know, the closing sentences of Gatsby. It's absolutely necessary to, to describe that. Because mm. I know they shot it in two D and made it three D afterwards, mm. and that's really clever. The idea that he would um, that he would shoot in that so that the audience feels a sense of almost mm. being there but not, which you know underpins his consistent emotion throughout the whole film, mm. because yeah. it definitely is underseen yes. as a film. I think we could you know go on talking for a lot longer, but we're going to end it here. So uh, thank you very much, Sam. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of, that was really great, and thank you all very much for listening. We are the uh, practice of film criticism podcast uh, and we will continue uh, with uh, future discussions uh, in subsequent weeks thank you very much for listening cheers ララバイ一人で泣いてじゃみじめよ